Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. This morning, uh, guys, it's great to see everybody. We're uh, we're going to be continuing in a sermon series uh, that we've been in a few for a few weeks now on the Book of Acts. Uh, the Book of Acts tells uh, essentially the story of the first thirty years of the church's life. It's told by the same man who wrote the Gospel of Luke, uh, a man fittingly enough named Luke, uh, and it continues on the story that he began to tell in telling the earthly life of Jesus. It, tells uh, the work that Jesus continued to do in and through his church and the world. And so we've called this series Purpose and Power, because really that's what Acts offers us. It shows us uh, that life in Christ offers us a purpose for our lives to join with his people in building his kingdom, and a power in the Holy Spirit working in us and through us. And so that uh, is the story that we come to today as we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2. If you remember, Jesus, uh, after the resurrection, told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until power from on high came on them, then they would become his witnesses uh, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so this morning, we're going to see that story when the Holy Spirit uh, comes on the church, uh, on that church, and we believe on our church and every church uh, along the way. So if you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Our scripture reading this morning is going to be Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished. Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, uh, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, and we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. You know, any study of church history, which is, which is what Acts is, the, the study of the earliest years of church history, any study of church history has to make account 
of just the utter surprise of it all. Uh, the almost preposterous story of how a small, marginalized, uneducated, ignorant group of men and women living in uh, part of kind of a, a marginalized people inside of the largest empire known to man, the Roman Empire, in a few relatively short years came to spread throughout that entire empire, becoming the major religious and philosophical force in the empire, ultimately even long outlasting the Roman Empire. You can't make sense of it simply by looking at the sociological and historical factors around it. I mean, the, uh, yes, some of those things helped. It helped that uh, Greek and Latin were fairly widely spoken, so they had some linguistic capacity. It helped that they lived under the peace of Roman rule. It helped that they had roads in which they could travel. But none of it makes sense of why this group, why these people should come to found a spiritual and religious movement that ultimately would outlast and even topple the Roman Empire itself. And this story is Luke's accounting. It's him telling us that you're right, that the story of the church doesn't make sense from a purely human accounting, that there's more to the story of the church, there's more to the success and fruitfulness of the church than you can account just by adding up the sum total of the gifts and abilities and know-how of the men and women who make it up. And guys, this has been true of the church's story for 2,000 years now. Right, that always around the world, the spread of the church doesn't make sense from a purely human standpoint, that there is more to the good news of what the church has been able to do in the world than we can account for. It's, you know, you look at uh, small groups of, of traveling monks, essentially, evangelizing all of Western Europe. You look at small little groups of Chinese Christians meeting under a totalitarian state in China and house churches that came to spread and fill these large cities and rural areas of China. There always is more going on in the church than can be accounted for by human abilities. And that is good news for us, right? It's good news as we look at our world uh, to know that there is more to our hope than simply what we can bring to the table on, in and of ourselves. Right, it's easy. Uh, it, it would have been easy for those early Christians or those early Christians living in a pre-Christian Roman Empire to say, "What hope do we have of seeing Christianity grow and spread? Of seeing ourselves live faithful lives of discipleship and our children grow and live faithful lives of discipleship?" In the same way, it's hard for us, isn't it? Sometimes entering into what's increasingly a post-Christian world to imagine that we can live lives of faithfulness and fruitfulness, that the, that the world that we're going to uh, give to our children is one in which they could live lives of authentic Christian discipleship, that we could really make a meaningful difference in our city and in our culture, right? If we're just looking to ourselves for these things, we're going to end up in despair, if not for a power beyond ourselves. And that's what the story of Pentecost gives us. It shows us that every Christian does live with a power beyond ourselves, that we have the very Spirit of God living with us and in us and working through us. That this story of Pentecost is a collision of God's world, the kingdom of God, God's very self, and our humanity. 
And so what we're going to see as we look uh, at this Pentecost story is the way that collision works. That at Pentecost, we see in the spirit, the bringing of the future into the present, the divine into the human, and the many into the one. First, we see the bringing of the future into the present. So we ought to talk about what Pentecost is, right? I mean, Pentecost was something before the Spirit fell on these first Christians. We're told, uh, if you caught that, that there were many Jews from all over the Roman Empire, all over the known world, that had gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. Pentecost was an Israelite holy day and festival uh, before it became a significant day in the Christian year, right? And what it was, was it was the day that they celebrated 50 days after uh, the Passover. The Pentecost, Penta comes from uh, our word for five or 50. And so it's, it's the, the celebration of 50 days after the Passover. And it was the feast of the first fruits of the harvest. It was at the feast in which they celebrated the beginning of what would become the harvest of their crops. First fruits, uh, you know, for those of us who live in kind of the modern uh, Western world, you can walk into a grocery store and get whatever produce you want almost any time of the year. Right? It's, it's crazy. You can go in the middle of winter, go into Publix and get strawberries because they're all coming from the Southern Hemisphere. Right? Through the, the chain of you know, distribution, you can get whatever you want whenever you want it. But in the ancient world, they lived by that agricultural year. And so uh, when the fruits or the crops first began to ripen, they would pull one piece of the fruit or one piece of the grain. And that was the first fruit. And it was an indicator of what the rest of the harvest was going to be like. Right? So uh, people still do this today. Vintners in California or France can go into the vineyard and take those first ripe grapes off the vine and taste it and be able to tell what that vintage is going to be like. Is it going to be a good year or a bad year for their product? Right? I always love, one of my favorite things is the first taste of peach season. Right? When you, you know, maybe you pick up one of those little peaches off the roadside stands, the guys that drive in from Georgia or South Carolina. And you taste that first peach usually at the beginning of the summer, and it's that taste of summer. You're like, oh yeah, it's going to be a good peach season. They're sweet and ripe and delicious. And so first fruits, it's not the harvest, right? It's not the fullness of what they'll celebrate at the harvest festivals, but it's the foretaste. It's the taste of what's to come. And Paul tells us that, uh, that the Holy Spirit in our lives, the gift of God's presence in the Spirit, is a kind of a first fruits. It's a first taste of the coming harvest that we will taste eternally. It's the beginning of us knowing that intimate communion with God that one day is going to mark what's available to us for eternity in Christ. And the Holy Spirit is the down payment. It's the sneak preview of what that is going to be like. Paul tells us in Romans 8, Romans 8 is one of the most significant chapters uh, in the Bible. Paul kind of gives a, uh, a synopsis, a, a, an overview of the, of the history of the world that we live in. And one of the things that Paul tells us is something that we all know, which is that the creation, every square inch of this world, is groaning in pain. Right? He's telling us that the world that we live in uh, is moving from life towards death. Right? We know this. We feel it in our own bodies. We see it in the world around us. We see it in our environment. We can we can know and experience empirically that the world isn't uh, blooming into more and more life, getting better and better, that the world, just like our mortal bodies within it, 
is running down. It's winding down. It's not moving from, it's moving from life towards death. It's groaning in a desire for life to be different than it is, for there to be no more sickness or war or death or poverty or injustice, right? That the whole creation is groaning for redemption. And Paul says, we too, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, also groan inwardly. But you hear what Paul's saying. He's saying in a world that's, that's locked inside of sin and death, in a world that's, that's kept prisoner to, uh, to the forces of sin and decay, that you have something different going on inside of you. That while this entire world is moving from life to death, if you're in Christ, you're actually moving from death to life. That in a world that's marked by decay, you're the first breaking out of springtime in the midst of an iced over world of winter, right? That the spirit is the first fruit of God's inbreaking kingdom in this world. It's a supernatural taste of heaven on earth that is poured out on people who believe in the name of Jesus, that's poured out on his, on, on his church. You know, it's often, uh, you may have thought of Christianity is being basically about how you get to heaven when you die, right? I mean, I think that's how I grew up thinking about it, right? That it was this offer of forgiveness of sins so that you could go to heaven when you die. It's about how you get to heaven. And of course, there is beautiful truth to that fact that we all do have to wrestle with our eternity and, and where we will spend it and all of those things. But Christianity fundamentally is not simply about how you can get yourself into heaven, but how heaven gets into you. It's not just how you get to spend eternity with God in heaven, but how God comes into your life in the here and now to make his life with you by the power of the Spirit. In the here and now, you have been given, if you're in Christ, this supernatural, abundant first fruits of heaven, of the kingdom of God. You know, th there's a moment in every, anytime somebody goes to retell the Superman story, right, which has been hap happened now dozens of times, both in comic books and movies and all of that, right, there comes a moment in every retelling of the Superman story where Clark Kent's parents there in that Iowa farm have to sit Clark down and say, look, we have to tell you something about where you came from. You're not like all the other kids. You have the power of another world that's in you and working through you. You're not like everybody else. Right, that's what makes Superman different than Batman, right? Batman uh, is kind of a normal guy consumed by rage uh, who gets by, right? He fights crime by being rich and smart and I guess good at karate and stuff. But it's basically he's on his own power, under his own wealth, under his own skills and abilities. And many of us live our lives as though that's basically our origin story, right? That we live our lives and we're basically left in this world to our own resources, to our own skills, to our own abilities, to our own wealth, to try to get what we want out of life. But what Paul reminds us of, what the New Testament reminds us of over and over again is that you're more like Superman than you are like Batman. Right, over and over again, Paul is telling his disciples, he's telling these early Christians in every letter that he writes, you have a power that's in you, that's beyond you. Right? Whether it's him telling these Christians and Romans that you have the first fruits of the Spirit. Whether it's him later saying uh, that you have what we read um, 
in our scripture reading uh, in, the, in the assurance of pardon, right? That you have the spirit by which you cry out, Abba, Father. You've not received a spirit of slavery. You've not received a spirit that makes you fall back into fear. So you can, what does he say? He says, keep in step with the spirit, be filled with the spirit, walk in the spirit, live not in the flesh, but in the spirit. This is Paul over and over again, sitting these early Christians down and saying, listen here, little Clark Kent's. You have a power in you that's beyond you. You have a power that's in this world, but it's not of this world. You've been born of a different kind of stuff, a different kind of supernatural power from another world in the midst of this world. And that, if anything, is what this Pentecost sermon is about. It's sitting down and saying, all right, listen here, little Clark Kent's. You guys have a power. You have the spirit. Every single one of you, whether you, uh, whether you feel it or not, whether uh, you consider yourself a, a Pentecostal spirit-born Christian or just an ordinary Christian, right? Whether you think of yourself as somebody who's, uh, uh, you know, spirit-filled or, or, don't, or aren't used to growing up around that language, the reality is that every Christian church is a Pentecostal church because every Christian church is gifted at Pentecost by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. For all who trust in Christ, this is a part of our birthright. So it's a collision where the future invades the present. Also, it's where the divine comes into the human. Listen, there's two uh, descriptions that Luke gives us for, the, for what happens here. The first is what, when, he, when he goes about to describe what it was like. The first thing he says is that there was a sound like a mighty rushing wind that filled the entire house where they were sitting. In divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. You notice what Luke is doing here. He's, he, notice he's using metaphor. He says, he didn't say it was a sound of a rushing wind. He says it was a mighty sound like a rushing wind. He doesn't say it was fire. He says it was like fire. And so this is Luke piecing together from the men and women that this happened to, what it was like, and they're straining at metaphors to figure out how can we describe this. It was a, a sound like a wind rushing into the room. It was a sight like fire coming down out of heaven and falling on each one of us. We know that it was enough of a spectacle. What is it? Remember, it says that the crowd hearing the sound came to, to the place. So it was enough of a sound. This didn't just happen in their minds or in their psychology. This was a sound that if you or I had been around, you would have heard it. But it was a sound like a rushing wind and a sight like the falling of fire. And these are two metaphors that over and over again in the scriptures signify the divine presence. Right? God's, God's presence at Mount Sinai is symbolized by the falling of fire. His spirit, uh, his presence to Elijah in the wilderness is a rushing wind. Uh, his spirit falling, his presence falling on the temple in Jerusalem is a falling uh, fire. Right? Over and over again, this language of wind and fire is metaphorical language for what the spirit and presence of God is like. And so Luke says that's what fell on these people. This isn't a mystical force. It's not, you know, it's not some uh, psychological renewal that they went through. It's not something that, they ha that happened in their mind. It was not some interior experience only. But it's the actual presence of God, the same presence that was experienced by Abraham and Moses and Elijah and David and all of their forefathers in the faith was now being experienced for them. 
but it happened in a fresh way. It didn't come and then go, right? Moses saw the burning bush, the presence of God. He stayed there, but then he had to leave, right? He was given a job to do and had to leave the fire. But here the fire comes and it rests on them. The wind rushes and it fills them, it stays. This is the very presence of God making his life with his people. Not to come for a moment and then go on, not to commission them for a job and then move, but to come into them and into us, to rest and to dwell with us. This is in many ways the culmination of the work of Jesus Christ. One commentator said that this is the last act of Jesus before his return, right? That, that we, the gospel doesn't end with the resurrection, but the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus on the cross, his resurrection and ascension, in many ways is all moving towards this moment when the third person of the Trinity, God himself, comes down into our lives and we have communion with God, right? That the gospel includes the gift of the Spirit. That to be, as we often talk about as a church, wanting to be a gospel-centered church, that to be a gospel-centered church means to be a Spirit-filled church because the Spirit is a part of the gospel, the gift of God's life here with us. God's grace is ultimately expressed in God's giving of himself to us, right? Grace, which we love to talk about, we love to, it's one of our main core values as a church is to be a grace-filled church. But grace isn't a substance, right? Grace isn't a stuff that Jesus won and now he gives to us. Grace is the person, it's God. Grace is God's gift of himself to undeserving people. It's the gift of God's very self, first his son, then his spirit, into our lives, right? That was one of the major uh, teachings of the Protestant reformers, right? That grace isn't a stuff that you're given. It's not a, you know, something that a priest gives to you as a thing, but grace is God's self-giving of himself to you, surely by his mercy, surely through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You have God himself. You know, uh, there's a little book uh, written in the 17th century by a little-known man uh, that actually had a world-changing impact. Uh, the book uh, was by a man named Henry Scalgill, uh, and the title of the book is The Life of God and the Soul of Man. The Life of God and the Soul of Man. Uh, Scalgill was a, a Scottish Puritan, uh, and he uh, had a little-known life. He died of tuberculosis at 28 years old. And he wrote this little book uh, initially as a letter to a couple of friends to explain to them what life with God was like. It's a really short book. It's about 160 pages. So longer than any letter I've ever written, but by book standards, pretty short. And he wrote it to friends and then it started getting passed around and published and, and it became known as the life of God and the soul of man. And even though he died in 1678 as a young man of tuberculosis, he'd been a a professor at King's College in Oxford for only five years when he died. But this book had an instrumental role in starting the First Great Awakening. It was read by John and Charles Wesley and then George Whitfield and led to some of the spiritual renewal that gave birth to the Great Awakening in both the UK and then in the colonies over here. And one of the things that Scalgill writes in, that, in this book, I love this quote. 
He says, the God of love had shot all his arrows, but he could never pierce our hearts until at length he put himself into the bow. You see what he's saying? God, God has been shooting his arrows at the human heart, the God of love trying to penetrate our hearts with the only thing that can ultimately change our hearts, his love. And ultimately, it wasn't until he himself got into the bow, first in the person of Jesus, coming into this world, living and dying as one of us, and then in the person of the Spirit, coming into our hearts, changing our hearts, giving us new hearts, transforming our hearts, that he could win us to himself, that we could be changed and transformed to live a life of true and abounding love to God and our neighbors. And so God fills their hearts. He fills their lives. And the fruit of that, the fruit of what we see when God comes into their hearts is that they stand up in front of a crowd of strangers and begin testifying to what we're told are the wonderful or the mighty works of God in verse 11. Some of this sermon was lost due to a technical glitch. We continue now. In redemption. It leads us to be willing to risk our lives, our reputations, rejection, to tell, to talk about who God is and to talk about what he's done for us and in us. And then the final miracle of Pentecost, the final miracle of this gift of the Spirit is that the many become one. Look, the miracle here, you know, the, the Spirit falls and, and Peter uh, begins to preach the disciples begin to preach, and all the people, these people who uh, Luke says gathered from around the world, and then he goes on to tell us these countries that basically represent the known world of the time. It's the entire Mediterranean rim from the Middle East uh, up through uh, Asia Minor, down around North Africa, and into Italy and Rome, right? All of these people hear these uh, ordinary, uneducated people, men that they call Galileans to indicate that one, they likely spoke Aramaic, uh, and two, they likely were not the most sophisticated people in the world. And yet every person heard them preaching in his own language. He heard them in his own voice. And so what we see is many different languages, many different kinds of people coming together into one new church, into one fellowship. It really is, uh, there's, there's all kinds of markers in the text that hearken back to Genesis chapter 11, right? That what's happening here at the fall of the Spirit at Pentecost is the undoing of what happened at the Tower of Babel. If you remember what happened at the Tower of Babel, uh, all the people spoke one language and they got together to build a tower by which they could ascend into heaven. And God, seeing their pride, seeing their arrogance, seeing their self-righteousness in this project of ascent, said, no, I'm going to take them and I'm going to confuse their languages. So they're not going to be able to, to speak to one another again as easily in order to make these idolatrous plans in their, out of their world. And so he confused their language so that they babbled to one another and they couldn't understand one another. And now the, the exact reverse happens. These people who spoke many languages begin to hear their many languages in one language. It begins to be the unwinding of what happened at the Tower of Babel. Whereas at Babel, they had been perplexed by their many languages and bewildered. Uh, here we're told that they were bewildered by the fact that in, in verse uh, six, 
They were bewildered that they heard, they heard everybody in one language. Verse 12, they're perplexed. People are, they're, they're unbelievable. Uh, they're unable to believe what's happening here with them is that what they know of the human family is getting reworked and brought back together. Listen, God's plan from the beginning of, of, of creation of human beings has been that he would be glorified through unity in the midst of diversity, right? We live in a diverse planet. The creation itself is diverse, right? God's glorified. Uh, God didn't make bears to be like lions, to be like trees, to be like caterpillars, right? He made many things so that he would receive glory through the beauty of his many faceted creation. And humanity also is diverse and multifaceted right? God made a God-given diversity to the creation, right? Different ethnicities, different cultures. At Babel, he even makes different languages, but that's a God-given judgment uh, to kind of keep humanity growing in their separate spheres. But what we see happening in Acts is the overcoming of those divisions, the overcoming of those separations into one new people, that God is committed by the power of his spirit and the work of his cross to overcoming all of the things that keep the human family separate, both the, the natural created things, things like culture and ethnicity and language, and the sinful man-made things like prejudice and pride, right? Those things that make people of one ethnicity look down on peoples of other ethnicities racism and, and the kind of national pride that makes some people look down on other people. God here shows us that he's committed to overcoming all of those things to build one new human family, undoing the judgment at Babel and bringing the diverse voices of creation together into one song, right? Taking the confused voices of Babel in weaving them together into the one voice that we hear at Revelation. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation gathered around the throne, singing praises to the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, this is good news. It's incredibly good news that God is taking the many languages of this world and weaving them together into a chorus of praise. That he's taking the estranged families of this world and bringing them together into one new family of God, marked no longer by pride and self-righteousness and judgment, but marked by love, marked by being brothers and sisters in Christ, marked by a unifying hope. This is incredibly good news for us. Because of this, because this is true, that the many become one through the spirit-empowered proclamation of the gospel, right? Because this is true, we have to be on our guard against any ideology uh, that would tell us that the divides between the human family are unsurmountable, right? There are voices in the world that would lead us to believe that the things that divide us are not, are not able to be overcome or perhaps aren't even worth overcoming, that we ought to live with some kind of animosity towards one another, judgment towards one another, right? But we can't give in to that. We can't give in to the despair that just hangs our head and goes, you know what? Racial, ethnic, and cultural healing and reconciliation is too hard, and so we shouldn't even try, 
right? Friends, we are born of the Spirit. We have the rushing wind and the falling fire of the Spirit. We're children of God through the Spirit. We are children of the one who's overcoming every single barrier that divides the human family. So we have reason for hope that there is a unity possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. We also have to be on guard against ideologies that would, that would lead us to not recognize or even minimize the fact that there are real barriers that do stand between us, right? There's nothing good to come from, the, from a minimization of the real barriers and real sins that often separate those who ought to be brothers and sisters in Christ, right? If, if the barriers weren't real, then the cross that tears them down wouldn't have been necessary and the spirit that was poured out wouldn't be necessary, right? The gospel tells us that the barriers are overcomable, but it would take a miracle. And then the miracle comes in the power of the spirit to help us to overcome them. And so we can have hope. This vision of Christian reconciliation is something that if done right, uh, ought to frustrate both the, uh, both the American political right and the left, right? That it's not quite at home in either, either one of those, right? That it is a transcendent and different vision, right? It, there's a part of it, isn't there, that sounds like kind of a feel-good vision of people of all the colors of the rainbow standing around and singing Kumbaya, right? We join hands and we sing, we are the world, and then everything's better. And the reality of the biblical telling of, of original sin is that kumbaya is not enough. We are the world is not enough. If that was enough, we would have gotten there by now, right? That, that, that is too thin a song to join the diverse voices of this world into a chorus. That when every tribe, tongue, and nation gets together to sing our song, it's not going to be kumbaya. It's going to be worthy as the lamb who was slain to receive all honor and glory and power and strength. And that one lamb has the power to take the many colors of this world and bring it into a mosaic in the church, to take the many colored threads of life in this world that are often so isolated and distant from one another and to weave it together into a tapestry for his glory and honor for all eternity through the power of his spirit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess that oftentimes uh, the work of your kingdom does seem overwhelming to us the work of being your witnesses and telling uh, the story of your grace and your redemption, the work of seeking the healing of the divisions of this body and the divisions of this world. And yet, Lord, uh, the power of your Holy Spirit would suggest otherwise. It would suggest to us that there is no barrier too great for your gospel to overcome. There is no uh, division too great for your spirit to heal. There is no barrier uh, that the running out of the message of the mighty works of our God can't move past. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that we who have a foretaste of your kingdom by the gift of your spirit would be a foretaste of that kingdom in our world, that we would be a beginning of a singing of your praise in our voices, bringing every culture represented under and beyond this tent uh, into one service of praise and witness. Uh, to the glory of your name. Lord Jesus, we are not always good at remembering that we live by the power of your spirit. We often fall back into living uh, by our own resources, living under our flesh. 
Lord Jesus, help us to be filled by your spirit, to keep in step with your spirit, and to live our lives as bearers of your spirit, bearers of your good news, ministers of your reconciling grace in our world. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.